We read most of this passage last week. The final word in Ephesians. Really the final, final word from verse 21 to the end is a postscript, if you will. Reminding us that this is a real letter written by a real man to a real church. Paul was in Rome, imprisoned at the time he wrote it, and sent it through his friend and a faithful servant, Tychicus. Tychicus may have even been, we said this at the beginning of the series, he may have been the one that actually scribed this for Paul, as Paul dictated to him, and they worked together. That often was the case in letter writing in those days. And so I'll read the postscript, because that's the way Paul signs the letter, if you will. So that you also may know that I am, how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So peace to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So that's the postscript. Really the final word that Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus has to do with a call to stand firm. Stand firm in the strength of the Lord. One of the primary ways we do this is through prayer. All things by prayer. That's one of our core convictions. We have ten of them. Not for you to memorize necessarily, but we use them as reminders as leaders and elders we process through them often that we would as we have agreed be convicted by these things and in, in the ways we make decisions if we have a hard time making a decision in the course we come back to our convictions which are in alignment with the alliance family as a whole we've added a few that we're deeply convicted of to get to the 10 all things by prayer is one we deeply resonate with because it is clearly one of the core convictions of scripture of all of the Bible. It's one of the primary messages. For Paul, prayer was first, last, and central. It's a way, a phrase that I've been using in 2020 for what we want to see prayer become in our midst as a body of believers. For Paul, it was first, last, and central. So we're in good company. Let's remember the anchor prayers of Paul as we have a final word in this Ephesian series that has run for almost a year now. We'll conclude it today. Let's remember the way that Paul prayed first and central for the Ephesian church and really for all churches that would come after this time. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. Paul begins his letter with this anchor prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, that you may know the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion 
and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we said last week how such a bookend, that statement, that prayer, and then that declaration to how Paul ends the letter. He had it in mind all along. Jesus is above all rule and all power and all authority and all dominion. So when he calls the church to stand firm, recognizing that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, against the enemy, against the opposer, Jesus rules over all. That's our hope, to stand firm. Therefore, how we live. So Paul began, prayer, prayer was first for him in everything that he did. Prayer was central, and really the center of this letter. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 has been proclaimed one of, if not the greatest, prayer for the church in all of Scripture. Now, I would argue, when I hear that kind of a statement, that Jesus' prayer uh, in John 17 uh, should probably come first, but this being inspired by the Spirit is a truly powerful prayer for the church. Receive it, church. Receive this prayer too. Make it your own. Ephesians 3.14, Paul's central prayer for the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. You love that greenhouse language right there? Hey, we didn't make it up, by the way. (laughs) We're just leaning into so much imagery that's all throughout Scripture. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. We said at that point of the letter, that essentially was letter number one. That was really the primary message that Paul wanted to leave for the Ephesian church. This is who you are, don't forget, because of who God is and what He's done. And, And this is my prayers for you. It could really stand alone. The second half, four through six, has been so vital for the church throughout the ages. We're thankful that Paul continued. But he continued after that declaration. Four through six is really the exhortations, the imperatives of our faith. If this is who God is and what he's done, and this is what the center of our prayer and our life and the love of Jesus, then here's how we live. Here's some examples. Here's the way it looks. And never take the two letters apart from each other, certainly not the second half without the first. And we've been mentioning that again and again as we've proceeded now unto the end. Unto the end. The last word of Paul has to do with prayer. Prayer was first, central, and last. This is verse 18 of chapter 6. So pray at all times, at all times, in the Spirit. That means both of the consciousness of that the Holy Spirit is with us in the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells the believers, just as Paul said in chapter 1, you are marked with a seal, the Holy Spirit. So pray in that Spirit. It also probably means pray in the Spirit, in the sense that the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans, helps us to pray when we know not what to pray. 
Pray that way. Pray bringing everything that you are. Pray in always, at all times, in the Spirit. And even when you don't know what to pray, like your Spirit groans within you, know that the Holy Spirit is translating that. All of your emotion, all of your, ah, He can bring to the Father and make sense of it. So pray in the Spirit in that way. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Intercede on behalf of others, He says. But pray also for me. Pray that words even may be given me that I can open my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. For Paul, that was real. He truly was in chains, imprisoned, about to face the end of his life, still praying for boldness to continue to proclaim the gospel. For us, we may not have actual chains, but as we discussed a couple weeks ago, we too would be bond servants of a master. That we too are like slaves unto Him, whatever His will and way is. And that's actually where, ironically, true freedom comes in our life as we willingly give ourselves to be under that good master, to be sent as His ambassadors with His authority and with His power. By the way, Paul ended his letter to the church in Philippi the same way with a call to prayer at all times in every way, a little more succinctly over in Philippians, Philippians 4, 5, and 6. I'm guessing a a good number of you would have this memorized. Hey, the Lord is at hand, he says. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he's pretty consistent in his life, in his ministry, in his call, that prayer was first, last, and central to all he did. And where do you think he learned that? None other than Jesus himself. It's right in this final word to center our eyes on Jesus, as Paul has been doing all along in his letter. Paul learned prayer in the same way. And pretty remarkable that Jesus, Jesus was the one who prayed first, Last and central to all he did when he operated in his ministry for those three or so years while walking this earth. I mean, it makes sense that someone like Paul, or like you and me, although we hesitate even to compare ourselves to Paul sometimes, but next to Jesus, he too is just a man trying to be faithful to follow the ways of Jesus. It makes sense when someone, a a man, a woman, recognizes I've been called by God. I've been set apart by Him. I've been called to His mission. And yet, it's daunting. It's humbling. Who am I, Lord? I recognize my weakness, my inability. It makes sense that we would call out for desperation to the Lord. Lord, help. Praying like that Father from Mark 9. Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. It makes sense to see desperate prayers like that. But Jesus, Jesus was God, wasn't He? He was fully divine, took on human flesh. So why then did Jesus need to pray first, last, and central? Why did He make that so vital in the way that He lived and walked on earth? Could He not have simply drawn from His perfect communion with the Father? If you have been following along with Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 35. Here's Jesus at the beginning of His ministry on earth. Rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, 
He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Prayer was first for Jesus. Not just first in his day, but first as priority. Often, so often, he would just slip away while the disciples were sleeping to pray, to seek the Lord. In fact, he prayed like this so often that in Luke 11, verse 1, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. He slipped away and prayed so often, even at times where the disciples, it didn't make sense to the disciples. Action was happening, things were taking place, where'd Jesus go? He's, He's praying yet again. He prayed so often, it was so central to his life that the disciples came to him and asked him, Teach us to pray. Now, what's amazing about that? Most of these disciples grew up as Hebrew boys in the synagogue. They were taught how to pray. They had it modeled to them. It was very central to their faith. And if there was something about Jesus and the way he prayed, the way he made it central, that they said to him, teach us us that. And now he taught them what has become probably the most famous prayer in all of history. Pray like this. When you pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today your daily bread. And he goes on, right? And you probably have heard that prayer. But that was prayer was meant to be a guide, not just to be recited as words on a page. See, what the disciples needed and what they really were asking of Jesus was teach us to pray with that kind of hunger, with that kind of priority, with that kind of communion that you have, with that kind of longing. When it sure seemed like the things of this world were way more important, even good things, you were ministering, you were healing people, the crowds were coming to you, and you withdrew. As if you needed that connection with with God so desperately. Teach us that. That's what they were asking. Not just for words on a page to recite, as if that could please God or get His attention. What they needed was a hunger and a thirst and a desire that Jesus had, that Paul had. Prayer was first and central. Prayer was also last for Jesus, just in the sense that He was always praying to the very end. And those couple pictures we see at the end of his ministry, the night before his crucifixion in John, John, the gospel shows us the best picture of what happened that night before he was betrayed, arrested, and crucified. He was in the upper room sharing Passover with the disciples, breaking bread, making the new covenant, trying to help them begin to see what it was all about. The upper room discourse, he taught them, he encouraged them. He had just washed their feet. He had served them. And after all of that, John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. And then he launches into this prayer that is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus we have in Scripture. I won't take the time to read it, but I encourage you to familiarize yourself with it if you haven't. And from that point, after he had prayed so intensely and so deeply for the unity of the church, 
They went out from there to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and you probably remember some of that story. And he went to the garden to pray and to seek the Lord again, just as, it, as was central to his whole life. And I just want to read this extended passage. Matthew gives us a pretty good picture of it in Matthew 26. And hold this in mind. And the reason I would read this is because it so lines up with Paul's call to the church in Ephesus, and therefore to all of us, any church that comes after the church, to be alert, to stand firm, to pray desperately, to pray at all times. With that call in mind from Paul, listen to this example, this picture of prayer of Jesus himself and what the, where the disciples are and how he calls them to pray. So Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, Matthew 26, 36. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Would you remain here and watch with me? And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup in the Old Testament was like a picture of uh, God's wrath. He had this sense that God was going to pour out wrath upon him. Let this cup this, pass from me. He knew what was coming. It wasn't a primary fear of the pain of crucifixion, although as a human there must have been trepidation. But it was primarily what, what God had called him to do and the pain of that separation, of carrying all of the world's sin upon him and putting it to death. So even he prays right here a prayer of anguish to his Father. And he says, yet not as I will, but as you will. And just like that prayer of the Father, I believe, help my unbelief, here is a simple prayer that has been galvanized for so many countless followers of Jesus throughout the ages. And I hope it is for you too, that you pray this way in the midst of pain, trial, hardship, suffering, grieving. Lord, let this pass. Take this from me. Heal, deliver. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. There may not be anything closer to the heart of God than that kind of praying. And so he models this for us. Praying in anguish, praying in desperation. And he comes to the disciples and finds them sleeping. At his moment of deepest pain, when he calls them to stand firm, to watch with him, to pray, they're sleeping on him. Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Prayed that prayer many times too. And again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes are heavy. Leaving them again, he went away a third time, saying the same words. And then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. Once again, they're sleeping for the third time. The hour is at hand. And at that point, he is betrayed by Judas and arrested. What a picture, I feel. What a call. We were just praying even this morning in our gathering at 
And I invite you to that if you don't regularly join us to begin your worship in prayer and community as we seek the Lord's presence and pray for the mission that he's called us to join us. We, we, we mentioned that we recognize this picture in that garden, which was a very literal place at a specific time for a couple hours. It was very finite that we have to understand that today we live in an era, in an age as the church that represents that similar place. Now, not bound by that same finiteness, uncertain of the time, but recognizing what Jesus is asking us as the church, his disciples, stand watch and pray, be alert, stand firm. The hour is at hand. And are we as his church asleep? Because we're heavy, we're tired, we're distracted. Paul calls the same thing. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all kinds of prayers and requests. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance and pray for all the saints. That's our conviction. All things by prayer. Take your rest later on. A time of rest will come. All eternity is our rest in the Lord. I'm not speaking to daily rest, to Sabbath rest. Don't mishear me but to the urgency of the call to stay alert and to pray because the hour is at hand. Do we not pray like this because we don't believe it will make any difference? Or has our lack of praying like this made no difference? Do we not pray like this because we don't really believe we're in a battle against the spiritual forces of darkness? Or do we not pray like this because we have already given up the battle? Do we not pray like this because we're tired, distracted, complacent? Or has a lack of praying like this made us tired, distracted, and complacent? Does the church in the West today even have hope to pray like this without persecution, without marginalization, without suffering, and without pain? I don't know. But I'm praying that my prayer life would awaken without more of the aforementioned. We can't recreate the persecution and the suffering that Jesus faced, that the apostles faced, that the early church lived with, that was their reality, which is the reality of so many followers of Jesus in our world today. More people will give up their life for Jesus in this next decade is estimated than it than the whole rest of history combined persecution is growing in our world relatively in our country i'm not i'm not saying it's not but i think it's more covert and subtle after all we are still here assembled openly proclaiming jesus as king without fear of the same kind of persecution that so many millions of believers have lived with throughout history I am praying that my prayer life awakens. There's a call to awaken Seattle. We've joined in two other times for 100 days of prayer. We're in the midst of, we just begun last week, 100 days of prayer. I encourage you to get on their text line if you want regular text updates, just to simply pray daily for awakening using that same language. You could use language like 
revival, renewal, restoration, any other word that starts with R. But awakening certainly lines up with the call of Jesus and the apostles. Wake up. Take your rest later. Stay alert. Paul says, wake up, O sleeper. Peter says, be alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around. So awaken us, Lord. It's a place to begin. By the way, this is the ways of Jesus. If prayer was first, central, and last to all He did, and we're trying to be followers of Jesus, followers of the way. Jesus is not just an ideology. Jesus is not just a good teacher who tells us what to think and what to believe. He's a good shepherd who calls us to follow Him. To know His voice. So we join with thousands of brothers and sisters in our region praying, Holy Spirit, awaken us. Pour out Your Spirit upon us. Will, will He pour it out like, like He did at Pentecost? I tend to think that was kind of a one-time expression, demonstration, saying that the Spirit has been poured out. What I believe is the Spirit is here, is latent within us, and He wants to awaken us and stir us and rekindle the fire that is laying dormant in the church. Certainly the church in the West. I think the church in Seattle. That's my context. I remember as a kid being infatuated with fire. What boy isn't? Come on, you know. And we would have bonfires in our backyard. We had a little bit of property and it seemed like we were always fighting the, the forest, the brush, and we would have fires from time to time. And there's a couple that I remember that were big enough, they left a pretty large pile of ash in our backyard. And I enjoyed going back out the next day and feeling, feeling that ash pile just warm to the touch. But if you dig down, that heat starts to grow. And I, and I remember having fun playing in the ash and the heat and bringing new tinder and a fresh wind and reigniting that flame, seeing if I could get it going again. And I was pretty successful at that. A, a whole new blaze was latent within that ash pile. I remember one day, it rained all night after one of these said fires, bonfires in the backyard. And so I went out and that ash pile was soaked, not even smoldering anymore. So I wondered just what was within and peeled back that wet ash. And all of a sudden it starts to get warm again. The warmth, the heat remained under there. So I kept digging and coming down to that true center core of heat. Now it took more intentionality. The heat wasn't quite as great. It was more localized. I had to work at it and carefully blow and ignite because soon that new tinder started to smoke. And I was able to reignite the blaze and be amazed that even a night of rain, which put out and, and soaked the top layer, still within, there, within that ash pile was latent heat, the potential for a whole new blaze. And that picture just came to mind as I was praying over this word and this message. Is this not a picture of the church in the West today or in Seattle? The Spirit's presence is there. The fire is within. Perhaps the winter rains have soaked and saturated. We don't have to work hard at resonating with that image this week, do we? 
But what do we need but to have the Holy Spirit scrape away that layer of wet ash and blow upon us with a fresh wind? Would we be like ready tinder for a new fire, a new kindling of the work He wants to do? I believe the church in Seattle is beginning to smoke. And I believe that the enemy sees it as well. And will attempt to snuff that out in whatever way he can. Will we pray with an attention, an intention, and an intensity, with a hunger and a thirst and a desire, with desperation for this kind of movement in the church? And it must begin with us. Lord, awaken me. Awaken my prayer life. Stir in me. Is it possible without persecution, without suffering, to create this kind of longing and hunger and thirst? I don't know, but I hope it is. Because the church needs to wake up. All things by prayer. Do you remember Acts 4? No, of course you don't. That was like two years ago. I actually went back and checked. I preached Acts 4 right around this time, two years ago, and I looked at it and I thought, maybe I should just preach this message verbatim. It was titled, All Things by prayer, because I'm not sure if in two years we've moved the needle at all on prayer. I think we're praying more. I know we're seeing answered prayers. I'm not trying to quantify that to more or less. But I'm not sure that our hunger and our thirst and our desperation has changed at all in two years. And I don't know if mine has. And this is what I'm bringing before the Lord and confessing to you. And I wonder if you would join me in that. The prayer of A.W. Tozer, I think a seminal book in my life, The Pursuit of God, at the end of the first chapter, he prays a prayer that I've prayed often. Lord, I want to want Thee. I desire to desire Thee. Very real prayer. Recognizing my desire, my hunger, my thirst is so meager to what is needed and to the task at hand. In Acts 4, when I preach this message, we see the early church under pain and persecution, like Paul and like Jesus. Peter and John had been arrested. They just healed a lame man, and they're proclaiming the gospel. The gospel is healing, restoration, redemption to all things. Now there's a man standing that everyone knew. He'd been at the, at the, at the gates for years, begging. Everyone knew him, if, if they would even look at him. And there he is standing and proclaiming what God has done. And the crowd is abuzz. And the religious leaders are, say, are, are, are furious that more of the same is happening, even though they killed Jesus. And they want to arrest and kill Peter and John and end this as well. But they fear the crowd. Because, and Hard to do when the man who was lame is now standing proclaiming what has been done in the name of Jesus for him. So they wait for an opportune time. They threaten them. Stop this preaching. And that threat landed pretty strong, didn't it? After what they had just done to Jesus. They were serious. But they sent them free. So Peter and John, they gather with the church and they pray. They have a prayer meeting. And they pray this, Acts 4.29 Now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And you, please, stretch out your hand to heal and bring signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they had gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with all boldness. Without persecution, I don't know that they would pray like this. And we cannot recreate that same persecution. That's not up to us, nor even long for it. But the desperation that comes from a people who are really wrestling with the call of Jesus to lay down your life, to take up your cross and follow me. They were willing to give all and they prayed like it. And I see the only real other option of learning to pray in power with hunger and thirst and desperation without the persecution that they faced is to have the Holy Spirit come and shake us and fill us again. And that's been my prayer for the church for years now. Holy Spirit, come and shake us and fill us with your presence to give us a hunger and a thirst and a passion like your church is meant to have. There's a fire latent within and we need the breath of the Spirit to blow upon us. If there's anything, as far as it depends on us, that could precede that, it's to understand the mission that we've been called to. The early church didn't miss this for a moment. Jesus had just said to them, go and make disciples of all nations. Teach them all. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit. And surely I am with you to the end of the age. That's your mission now. That's your purpose. Bring salvation, restoration, and healing to all peoples. Right here in Jerusalem and in Judea, this region, to Samaria, even the people that you have historical animosity with, to all peoples. Because I love them all unto the ends of the earth. They were daunted by that mission and that call. And may we be also daunted at both the massiveness of it, the scope of it, our own inability to seem to make a dent at at it at all. And I can't even convince myself some days to follow Jesus, let alone my neighbor, my Hindu friend at work, my Muslim neighbor, my, my, my family member who has renounced the church were daunted by the mission the, in scope and also just in practicality, our own inability. But God doesn't use able people. He uses willing people. Are we willing? Are we still hungry for more? It must be pointed out that the primary thrust of Paul's final words here about The armor of God, standing firm, praying at all times, this primary thrust is missional. Not so that we can live comfortable lives or be victorious or get the devil off our back or get back to being comfortable and secure. It's not that at all. It's missional. It's for the advancement of the kingdom of God because as the kingdom starts to advance, the enemy starts to resist and counterattack. And we're called to stand firm. And this is why so many have 
proceeded to join the mission of God and say, I, I will, I, I'm going I'm to be an evangelist, I'm going to go. And sometimes we go in our own strength and we get just the counterattacks hit us. But other times we face real attack, fully equipped one to another, and it's hard. And the enemy is resistant. And so we look at that life and that call and we say, you know what? Maybe not. And we don't turn and flee. By the way, there's not much protecting our backside in that list of armor. So we wouldn't turn and flee. That'd be foolish. But just a slow backpedal like we might if we faced a wolf or a bear out in the woods. Turning and running is not a good idea, by the way, if you're ever in the woods. A slow backpedal. Maybe make yourself big and bold and just withdraw. Come back to a place of safety and security. And usually you're left alone. And it might be the very same spiritually as we engage the battle, recognize, man, things are are falling apart. Things are tense. My, My anxiety, my stress, my pressure is up. People in my life seem to be hurting and struggling and suffering more. What is going on? And while we can't attribute everything to the enemy, we don't give him that kind of credit, we recognize that there is a spiritual battle and these words are true. And so to withdraw, as we withdraw, actually we might very quickly find out that life gets easier, more comfortable, better. And so it would be better. And that's what Paul is saying. And Jesus said, you've gone back to sleep. Back to a place of ease. You're never called to a place of ease or comfort or security. You're called to a mission. You're called not just as a soldier, but he's calling an army to stand firm interlocked shields for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places biblical passage came to mind exodus 17 you may remember this the Israelites are in their, in their wilderness time in, in Exodus, in their journey, and they're being confronted now by various nations. The army of Amalek comes to fight against them. Moses is aged. Joshua is now leading the army. And so Moses and, and Aaron and Hur go up onto the mountain to pray, to pray over the battle. It's actually the, the greatest, most powerful thing they could have done, but also probably the most effectual considering age and stage in life. They're going to seek the Lord on behalf of His people. And you you may remember the picture, Exodus 17, uh, verse 10. Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill, and Moses held up his hands, praying to God. And as long as he was holding up his hands, and this wasn't wasn't Moses' might, but he had his hands and his staff. It was God's reminder, and the picture I think is so powerful for, for us today. As long as his hands were up, the, the army was winning and prevailing. It's like God's army was there with him, pushing back Amalek. But when he grew weary and his arms came down, he may have been 100 years old at this point. He's, try, he's still praying, but his arms are down. The enemy starts to advance, and they can see it there before them. So Aaron and Hur take each side, and they hold up Moses' arms. They're praying along with him, shouldering the weight. And they prevail to the end. And Joshua overwhelms Amalek and his people and the sword. And I just wonder, does the church pray like this? We're never alone. 
But do we pray like this in desperation? Without you, Lord, this will fail. We will be defeated. With you, we triumph. Not out of my might and strength. Our strength will fail, especially if we try to be out there on our own. We need one to another. Pray with all kinds of prayers for all the saints. Paul says, pray even for me. If Paul faced that affront and that opposition and the enemy and wanted just to quit and yield and give in, if Paul did, who do we think we are? Pray one to another. Remind one another that we're not alone. Encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The dawn is coming. We're in that final hour. It's at hand. We need to be a church that prays like it. Consider this early church from Acts 4. They didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for God to deliver them or rescue them or crush their enemies. They may be, those may be good prayers. Jesus prayed, take this cup from me, essentially deliver me, but your will be done. I just find it convicting that what they prayed for in that moment was grant us boldness to continue. That's what's on their heart and mind. Not safety and security and deliverance and victory. Boldness to proclaim in the midst of persecution. To stand firm. To remain awake. I had a quote here, but I'm way off my notes. Warren Wearsby said, If more of God's people were witnessing for Christ in daily life, there would be more urgency and greater blessing when the church prays together. Without a recognition of the mission at hand and what we've been called to, I don't know that we will ever pray with this kind of urgency and desperation that we see in the early church. And I'm not sure we will ever truly be filled, shaken, empowered, and ignited. Lord, may it come without persecution. If the only way is for persecution, then your will be done. Refine your church. Awaken us, Lord. Send us on your mission. R.A. Torrey said, pray for great things, expect great things, work for great things, but above all, pray. Prayer is not just our inspiration and our motivation. It is a destination. It's communion with God. It's hearing from Him. It's bringing all to Him. It's knowing Him. So we pray. All kinds of prayers and requests. Be free in your prayers. Find the prayers of the saints in Scripture, like in Acts 4, and pray them. Pray them with urgency and earnest in earnest. We pray the scriptures. We pray the promises of God. We pray like Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We pray for more of the Spirit. How much more will your Father in heaven give to those who ask him the Holy Spirit? We pray for more, Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus, the will of Jesus. Whatever is in accordance with your will. Not my will, but your will be done. And we know that's the fulfillment of his mission for why he came. We pray that God scrape away the wet ash of our hearts and souls and blow up on us with fresh wind. Pray that the church begins to smoke. Ignite us, Lord. We pray for all the saints that we might proclaim the word of God boldly and not shrink back, that we might stand firm. All things by prayer. 
church. First, last, central. Thank you, God, for sending Paul to write this word to the church. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for preserving it for us. Thank you, Jesus, for creating the church, building the church, loving the church, sending the church, and empowering your church. So peace be to you, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible.